0: Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung it out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grips him on the run. Yes! 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 Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Yeah. Braves, the world champions. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grab McCauley.
1: Hello and welcome to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia Studios here on a Sunday afternoon. Thanks for making this part of your weekend as we wrap up what was a busy week for the Atlanta Braves. A busy weekend up in New York. Obviously, we'll get all into this matchup with the Mets. And, of course, it was a busy week across baseball because the trade deadline went down. And then, as if all of that news was not enough, the baseball world suffered a tremendous loss with the passing of longtime Dodgers broadcaster and Hall of Famer Vin Scully. So we have so many things to talk about on this show. We'll, of course, start with the Atlanta Braves, as we always do. But before we do any of that, I want to remind you to connect with us on social media. You can find me on Twitter, at Grant McCauley. You can find Corey, at Corey J. McCartney. Find the show, at From the Diamond, with an underscore on the end. And, of course, make sure you're following 92.9 The Game, at 92.9 The Game. Corey, great to be back with you. I think that you kind of... Uh, really sum things up right before we jumped on the air by saying it feels like it's been a year since the Braves signed Austin Riley to a contract extension. You and I haven't even gotten to talk about that yet since last week's show, but this was a crazy, news-filled, action-packed, eventful week for the Braves and, of course, the rest of baseball.
2: Yeah, I mean, if we had only had the Riley extension to talk about, I mean, that would have, we could have filled, you know, a couple segments with just that alone, and then you add in the trade deadline, and then you add in the series with the Mets, and it was, and obviously Ben Scully and just, on and on and on and on. It just it was just uh, hit after hit in this news cycles.
1: It really was. I mean, the trade deadline is something that I think fans are always anticipating, looking forward to, dissecting, and we're going to do plenty of that on this show. Rest assured. But we want to start things as we always do by taking a look at this week in Braves baseball, and uh, we'll just lead things off with what's been going on here in the uh, over the weekend which is, of course, the matchup with the first-place New York Mets. And, Corey, suffice it to say things have not gone the, air quotes, Braves' way in this series. They do have one uh, rather big and notable win amongst the series as they wrap things up on Sunday afternoon. But the Mets were able to sweep a doubleheader on Saturday to make sure that they take this series from the Braves. And I feel like, if anything, Atlanta has not looked like the team that it has throughout its winning ways that began on June the 1st. The Mets have had the Braves' number this year, and they have been, quite honestly, the better team in the head-to-head matchups thus far. There's really just no way around that.
2: I will sum up everything we've seen to this point with three things. Ronald Cooney Jr. has had one fantastic series. Uh, infield hits are killers, and Max Scherzer was obviously uh, running in with a chip on his shoulder after the way he left last year's NLCS when you think about his two starts so far against the Braves this season.
1: Yeah, and this is exactly what they paid Max Scherzer to come in and do is be a big game, front-of-the-rotation pitcher. His resume says he's capable of doing that. His results this year say he is more than capable of giving the Mets what they paid for. And, oh, by the way, if the $43 million he was making with the Mets wasn't enough, <laughs> the Washington Nationals are also paying him $15 million this year. So this is basically a $60 million pitcher that went out and had his way with the Braves on Saturday to help New York take that doubleheader. So as lighthearted as we can be about this or that, there's nothing lighthearted or funny about the results for the Braves over this series because every single one of these losses to the Mets cost them a full game in the standings. You lose the opener, you bounce back, you even up the series, then you get swept in that doubleheader. And that really, you know, tipped the scales toward the Mets and, I know that it's easy to look at this and beat doom and gloom and say, well, if you can't beat the Mets head-to-head, if this is the way it's going to look, maybe this race has already been decided or maybe it's in the process of being decided in this series. But I can tell you this, there's about 50 games left in the season, over 50 games. There are still seven matchups between these two teams, one that will be happening at Truist Park as soon as the Braves can can wrap up this 11-game road trip. There are opportunities out there for the Braves, but they're going to have to figure out a way to play better and raise their game to the level in which the Mets have come out to battle Atlanta. And these matchups
2: between these two teams take on an even higher level of importance when you consider the schedules that they'll play down the stretch. Because, I mean, the, the Mets are going to play 28 of their last 36 games against teams that are below 500. They have eight more of those games against the Braves in that span. Mm -hmm. And obviously there will be seven games against these teams during this time period too. But if you can't beat the Mets, then you have to anticipate or hope that the Mets are not going to be able to perform against teams that that they should be mopping the floor with. So I just think it just puts an even bigger spotlight on these games when they go head to
1: head it really does we're going to talk a lot about the trade deadline in fact we'll get into it in our next segment as we continue on this week in Braves baseball here on Front the diamond on sports radio 92.9 the game but we're going to put the trades off to the side we knew these clubs could look a little bit different on the other side of the trade deadline but yet neither the Braves nor the Mets really swung a blockbuster trade I think the Braves getting Rice selling right at the final moment of the trade deadline was the big note that Atlanta ended its you know shopping on but that's not necessarily something that's come into to factor in this series because the mets have been the team with the lead for the majority of the four games played coming into sunday. Now let's talk about some news that did happen in this and, and something a story we've been following quite a bit and one that you know 7 days ago as we were talking about it we thought has Ian Anderson found the answers after a good outing against the Arizona Diamondbacks we thought maybe. Then he went out against the New York Mets was spotted an eight nothing lead was unable to get through five and really more of the inconsistencies that have plagued him throughout this season. And now, as you look at this with Anderson, he's been optioned down to triple A Gwinnett, a move that you and I have discussed a move that you know people have wondered. I've been asked a lot on social media, you know, are, are the Braves even considering doing this? And if so, when are they going to do this? And what would be the answer in rotation? Well, two things happen. The trade deadline, the Braves got Jake Odorizzi and then Ian Anderson went out and had a rough start against the Mets. So, He has been optioned to Gwinnett, will remain with the club to work on the side and then be used as the 27th man in the doubleheader come Saturday against the Miami Marlins. But that, of course, is a week away. But Ian Anderson's trajectory after that is very much in question because he is going to have to go down to AAA and figure some stuff out. I
2: mean, and it's a little confusing, I'm sure, for people to hear that he has been optioned to to, to AAA Gwinnett. But he's going to stick around with the Team on this taxi squad, and then end up making one more start as a braid before he goes down to Triple A Gwinnett to make some runs there with the Striper. So I know it's a little bit confusing there. Yeah. um, But obviously we we kind of saw the writing on the wall. I mean, think about a five eight one ERA since May twenty second. I've talked about this in the show multiple times. Just the struggles that he's having with that four seam fastball. It's now a three thirteen batting average against a you know four fifty one slug. I mean these numbers. I mean that that batting average is nearly a hundred points higher on that four team than it was a year ago. And certainly, when you're a guy who relies so much on an off-speed pitch that looks like a fastball and the changeup, um, just it limits your ability to be as effective with that pitch. So, I don't think anybody needs to be of the mind that that they're giving up on Ian Anderson. I mean, right. I hope nobody is is, is thinking that. Um, but certainly, a, a reset. You know, Kyle Wright. You know, he got his reset and we saw how that thing played out. Mm-hmm. But it's it's of note, I think, with Anderson because he's not made, and you think about those four starts he made in 2021 coming back from the shoulder inflammation, he's not made consistent starts at the minor league level since August of 2019. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time. Uh, but, you know, sometimes this happens in a guy's career where you have to go back and hit that reset and find yourself again away from the pressure of taking rotation spots in a major league roster uh, this is Ian Anderson's opportunity to do that.
1: Yeah, and keeping in mind, this guy is just 24 years old. Yep. And with his success in 2020 and 2021, the role that he played for the Braves in those two separate years in which he got postseason experience, in which he excelled in pitching in October, including a, a very memorable start that he turned in against the Houston Astros as the Braves won the World Series. You know, we know what Ian Anderson is capable of, but right now, those results just simply haven't been there. An ERA of 662 over his last eight starts. 44 hits, 21 walks, opponents hitting just under 300 against him in his last 35 and a third innings. And while you might look at his record, if you are the kind of old school person that thinks that a pitcher's record is really indicative of their entire season, well, I can tell you a few reasons why it's typically not, but he's 9-6. and six. But if the Braves weren't averaging six runs per game in his starts, that record could very much be inverted or it could be very much worse. So while the Braves haven't necessarily lost all of Ian Anderson's starts, you know, and, and putting it squarely on the pitcher there, It has been a bit of a grind, and the Braves offense has picked him up quite a bit this year, and I just don't think that over the final couple of months that Atlanta can necessarily look at this and say, this is our best option right now. It it really is an opportunity to step aside, allow him to reset. This worked for A.J. Minter last year. This worked for Kyle Wright, though I give a lot of credit to the pitchers themselves for going down, seeking answers, trying to find changes, making adjustments, and it's not always mechanical either. Sometimes it's just it's a mixture of different things, whether it's the mentality, whether it's changing the pitch mix, whether it's working on another pitch, adding something to your arsenal. It's not always, oh, well, there's a flaw in his mechanics, and that's the, the issue for him. So hopefully he can find out whatever it is that has been ailing him thus far. But that, I think, the biggest story, you know, Braves' story outside of the results up in New York, which to this point on Sunday have not been particularly promising. Another one of the bigger developments from this series, an injury scare for catcher Travis Darneau. He was uh, tangled up with Pete Alonso in the sixth inning of Saturday night's game. Uh, game two of that doubleheader had to leave the game, had x-rays on his lower right leg. Those came back negative, which is actually a positive in this case because that means that there was no structural damage. But he's going to miss most of the next week. Uh, looks to rejoin the club on Friday, perhaps in Miami, uh, as far as getting back into game action. So the Braves had to make a couple of different roster moves. They called up uh, Chadwick Tromp from A Gwinnett, added him to the roster. They also option down Guillermo Heredia, who I did not realize had options, uh, to A Gwinnett in the corresponding move for that. And, of course, with Ian Anderson going down, Wascari Noah was called up, but that is, of course, just an extra arm after a club had a doubleheader on Saturday and has had a little bit of trouble getting some length from starting pitchers here over the past three days.
2: And I, I'll say going uh, into this uh, final game of this series, too, not having Travis Darnot makes you think about William Contreras and Spencer Strider, and mm-hmm. Spencer Strider having to go toe-to-toe with Jacob Degrom. And how does a young battery uh, work through, you know, what's... I mean, this is the biggest start of Spencer Strider's career. I mean, he's he's faced the Mets before, but he's not, never... He's not been a city Field. He's not faced a guy of DeGrom's level uh, toe-to-toe. Um, he's actually been better uh, in terms of the, weight, the batting average produced with Contreras than he has against Travis Darno. So don't get too uh, caught up in that, but... Uh, what a weird moment on that that play, though, with Darno and, and uh, Pete Alonzo. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that they thought that maybe he was blocking the plate, I mean, clearly he jumped up, had to pull down, yeah. uh, but that was a scary moment, obviously the Max Freed moment when he hits his, yes. his head and his shoulder at the same time on that really awkward throw, uh, trying to go home on that play on the missed uh, throw there by Dansby Swanson. So um, a, a lot of scary moments there in that, but certainly uh, to this point they've uh, seemed to avoid any uh, major issues.
1: Yeah, very fortunate to not have Max Freed suffer anything because he took quite quite a tumble over in foul territory past first base. And, you know, the, the defense really bit the Braves in that game too, because you can look at Max Fried and say, yeah, well, he wasn't able to match up with Max Scherzer. No, he didn't strike out 11 guys and dominate the way that Scherzer did, but Fried did not pitch altogether poorly. I mean, there were some really poor plays made behind him that I think really spelled the end for the Braves. I mean, it it was not going to be a big offensive night, so it just kind of is what it is, but that was not a start that the line is indicative of how Max Fried pitched uh, in last night's game. So, You know, if you are looking for things in this series that were of a particular positive note, uh, let's talk about Ronald Acuna Jr. His absence from Sunday's lineup notwithstanding, as the the Braves and Mets were a little bit weather-delayed. They didn't want to put Acuna out in right field on a wet turf. I can understand that. He is available for Atlanta if they need him off of the bench. However, he was really heating up in this series, including a four-hit game, including a tape measure home run, things that you wanted to see from Ronald Acuna Jr., some outstanding defense, leaping catch against the wall, which... Of all the things that he's done, I mean, maybe notwithstanding that home run that landed in the apple basket in center field, seeing Ronald Acuna Jr. anticipating getting back to the wall, making plays, and leaping in right field, that's a sight for sore eyes.
2: Eight hits th- uh, through the first four games was the most he's had in any series this season. Uh, you mentioned a home run on Thursday, doubled in both of Saturday's games. Here's what I thought was really interesting, though, about those doubles and the home runs. They all came on sliders, and he did so on uh, that home run again. He hit 215 on that pitch uh, a month ago. Month before that, it was 211. This month, it's around 300. So he's getting back to basics and getting back to what he does so well.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what the grind is for any hitter that goes through an elongated period of just not getting those results. And and I have had so much, so many conversations over the past month from all different places on the spectrum about Ronald Acuna Jr. Let me tell you where I fall on it. Is that this guy is way too talented to play this way for too much longer. He is going to figure it out. But on the flip side of that coin, or maybe just kind of, you know, a parallel to that, this is a player who has always been, always, from the time that he was, you know, what do they say down here in the South, knee high to a grasshopper? From that time, he was one of the best players, if not the best player on the field every time he takes the field. And that has not been the case over the past month. Now, the injury is the reason why. The comeback from the injury that has set back his career is the reason why he finds himself in this place. Now, I don't think it's a totally physical thing. I think it's more than anything, it's a mental thing. It's getting back to trusting your leg, trusting yourself, getting your timing back, getting your reps. I mean, every one of these pieces is interconnected. But I say all that to say failure is an incredible teacher. But Ronald Acuna Jr. has not had much experience with failure in his young pro career or probably any time prior to that, on a baseball field.
2: I thought it was so key that he ended up admitting on Thursday night that the knee isn't always hundred percent, that it always doesn't always feel right. That The swing doesn't always feel the same way when he plants. I thought that was really interesting. And it's interesting too, that since he kind of opened up for the very first time about some limitations he's having, that he took off. And maybe it's just getting that off of his chest and being a little bit more open with the situation. But from that moment on, uh, he's been back to looking like Ronald Acuna Jr. again.
1: This series is a first big step towards, I think, reestablishing some of that. Maybe reinstilling in him the confidence that, hey, it's all still here. I'm still able to do these things. But until you see some of those results, no matter how hard you grind, no matter how hard you work, no matter how much time you spend hitting in the cage prior to a game or after a game, you still want to have those results to really validate all of that work. And Ronald Acuna Jr. is just like all of us. He puts his pants on one leg at a time, as far as I know, and you know he goes out there and plays a baseball game. But long story short, I think it's good to see these signs, and I think that there are going to be a lot of people who had some takes about Ronald Acuna Jr. in the month of July 2022 that are probably going to look back on those and think they were rather silly. Be that as it may, this is not a show where we like to throw out silly takes, but that will wrap up our opening uh, soiree into this week in Braves baseball. We've got a lot more, though, for you here on from the Diamond Grant McCauley. Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios. This is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Now, back to more from the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
1: Welcome back. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. As we continue this week in Braves baseball, and it was quite an eventful week. We've talked about uh, the series, the disappointment. I'm sure the Braves are feeling up in New York as they try to wrap up a series and salvage the finale on Sunday But suffering that doubleheader sweep on Saturday means that the Metropolitans have once again taken a series from the Atlanta Braves. And when you're the team doing the chasing, every one of these games you don't win is an opportunity that you probably are going to want to have back at some point. But we'll get more into that a little bit later. Let's talk about the trade deadline, Corey, because uh, when you joked about this earlier, and we talked about it a few minutes ago, you know, the, the news that was packed into this week, the trade deadline for the Atlanta Braves has been kind of a... Uh, Just quite a moment to monitor. If you look back at 2021, of course, we know what that spawned and what the result of that was. So I think we'll always have some cool trade deadline memories for that season. But what do the 2022 uh, moves mean for the Braves? I think that they were able to add some pieces. I think that they were able to, you know, create – uh, or, or fix some deficiencies in the roster and add some guys that could be useful pieces. But there was no bigger deal for the Braves than the one they made in the final moments before the trade deadline went down, and that was getting closer. Rice-Ell Iglesias from the Angels for Jesse Chavez and Tucker Davidson. The Braves are going to take on $48 million over the next three years from rice Iglesias, who has been a very quality closer over the course of his career for the Reds first and then uh, for the Angels. So you would imagine this is the heir apparent to Atlanta's ninth-inning duties or some high-leverage innings at the very least over the next three years. We'll see what uh, how it plays out long-term, but in the short-term, to add an impact arm like this to the Braves bullpen is uh, quite something for Alex Antopoulos to pull off in those final moments before the deadline.
2: So, just to, to everyone understands the picture here, we are in the press conference room for Austin Riley to come in and talk about this new ten-year, two hundred twelve million dollar yes. deal that he has. There's a collection of his teammates sitting in the back of the room during the press conference, which I've, have, have, I mean, I and, and I've never seen that before. And all these guys are sitting in the back. Freed Swanson, you know, there everybody's back there. Alex Anthopoulos is not in the room and it's like 606 608 and then he comes strolling in because he's been out in the hallway working with Peri and working this deal to get La Iglesias from the Angels. and it was just the fact that we watched it all happen in real time with the and with these guys in the background it was
1: it was crazy. Well, let me paint a different picture or add to that picture in my very Bob Ross fashion here. <laughs> and this is not a happy little treat for no. Jesse Chavez, by the way. He was one of the players in the back of the room for the, the collection of Braves teammates who were sitting in the back of the gallery behind the press, uh, the, the media that had assembled for the announcement of Austin Riley's $212 million extension. You did have Dansby Swanson and A.J. Minter and, and a host of other Braves teammates, guys that have obviously been with Riley for quite some time. Jesse Chavez was one of the guys in the room. He had to be summoned out. Brian Snitker had to be summoned to come back out of the room. Both of those guys were obviously told and for Chavez he's he said uh, to some reporters in the back, tenth, "This is the 10th 10th time he has been traded in his career." There was an article that had come out earlier that day that called him the most traded man in baseball yeah. history. So that's quite something. Now, the focus of this, obviously, is not only in Jesse Chavez. It's what rice Ellie Glacius does mean to the Atlanta Braves bullpen. And this is a high-impact arm. And this was a guy that uh, quite obviously went out to Los Angeles and got himself a nice big contract. But the Angels divest themselves of that. The Braves, meanwhile, get themselves one of the better right-handed relievers who was available prior to the trade deadline and somebody that could be a piece for them for a while. Yeah, they got three more seasons of him at
2: 16 per, which is $2 million less than they're paying uh, Kenley Jansen this season. Uh, I mean, Iglesias, obviously, you know, people know this guy, you know, big flamethrower, comes in top 5% uh, in strikeout rate at nearly 33%. He's in the 94th percentile in chase rate. Uh, the obviously the ERA was up, but you think about uh, the fact that he was on a struggling team. How much was he even in you know safe Leverage. situations? Yeah. I mean, they went through a fourteen game losing streak. I mean, there were times where he was going out there and and getting work and mop up duty in games where I'm sure the adrenaline was not exactly pumping. Uh, for a guy who's a closer, but um, I I, I was really stunned by this deal. One, you know, I was trying to figure out the offset, like how's this going to work with Kenley Jansen, who's obviously already the closer, and how's, you know, Iglesias has never been a setup guy before, so how's that going to work? Yeah, um, This was one of the more stunning deals, and everything else was more about, like, let's get need, let's get need. Yeah, we talked about a right-handed power arm. I didn't think they were going to go get one that was going to be their closer for the future, so a really deft move. I'm really surprised the Angels even did this. Like, if you're going to keep Shohei Otani... And you think mm-hmm. you can contend, don't you need a closer? I mean, you think like you have a guy for three years, yeah. it's not like they got something in return where it's like, oh, now I understand it. I mean, Tucker Davidson had a start today for them, he wasn't exactly lighting the world on fire. just, it, To me, it's not a maneuver that you make unless you're getting something in return that sets you up for the future, and I don't know if that happens.
1: Well, maybe they're going to take the $48 million well, that, that they were going, they going did, to pay right pay to Iglesias and use that to pay for one year of Shohei Otani, because we don't know what that's going to look like in free agency, but I can tell you this. It's going to be very expensive, but the Braves address a major need by getting Iglesias just to add and strengthen a bullpen that has, you know, at times, been vulnerable this year, but also, if you just look at the numbers overall, has rated among the top five bullpens in Major League Baseball and certainly in the National League, but you can always have more. And they hope to have Kirby Yates back in the not-too-distant future, so that adds another guy with closers' experience to this mix. Also in this trade deadline, the Braves went out and got Jake Odorizzi from the Houston Astros in exchange for Will Smith. Now, this was an interesting trade for two reasons. Number one, I really felt like the Braves needed to get some kind of veteran to bolster this rotation. Number two, though, I did not expect Will Smith to be a guy that was going to be moved at the trade deadline, that the Braves were going to be able to get much for him, and as you look to the return of Kirby Yates growing closer by the day, as we expect, this could have been Will Smith being the odd man out. The Braves could have ended up designating him for assignment. That's the way that the tea leaves seem to read to me, Corey, what do you make of this move? And... Uh, and how important do you think it was for the Braves to go out and get a veteran starter to add to their rotation mix?
2: Well, now that we know that they've subsequently, you know, done this uh, with Ian Anderson, it obviously makes a lot of sense. And Chav and w- Will Smith was not having the strongest of seasons. I mean, he obviously of late, you know, he no, really he struggled, struggled a twelve six oh ERA in his last six appearances. I will say though, you think about with Jesse Chavez and Will Smith, they were integral to the the. Uh, the vibe with that, that bullpen so much so that they went and got Luke Jackson, who's in the middle of Tommy John rehab and brought him in on the taxi squad to travel with the team to New York. I mean, I don't know that people really understand what Will Smith and Jesse Chavez meant to the culture of that clubhouse. I mean, you're literally going and get a guy who has no, I mean, Luke Jackson, I mean, he he has no no real reason to be there aside from the vibe guy. Mm-hmm. That's literally that that you had to go out and get somebody to come in and help with the culture because you removed two guys who were key to it. But yeah. on the, I mean, I obviously I completely understand. Will Smith was not having a great year. I mean, you're able to go out and in the Astros were in a position where they had six star, uh, starters on their major league roster. Lance McCullers Jr. is on his way back. They traded from a position of strength. You swept in. You made a great deal. Um, But uh, certainly, I mean, it it was surprising that they were able to get a starter for Will Smith.
1: Yeah, we saw Jake Odorizzi make his Braves debut in Game 1 of the doubleheader on Saturday. I don't think it was his strongest start of the season, certainly not the worst start I've seen all season either. He was unable to get through five innings because he had a cramp in his right hamstring, so he was removed a little bit early. Um, He had an error on a pickoff that kind of opened the door for the Mets to score a, a run or two. That didn't help out, but that notwithstanding, I mean, the expectations for Jake Odorizzi were pretty simple. Hey, come in and try to give us a quality start. And a quality start, by definition, is six innings with three earned runs or less. I don't want to sit here and debate how I don't think that that should be the only definition of a quality start because, you know, if you go eight innings and off four runs, your ERA is the same. Should that not be a quality start? (laughs) What if you throw a complete game and allow four earned runs? Your ERA is lower than the guy who allowed three earned runs in six innings. Shouldn't you be getting a quality start? Regardless, all I want this guy to do is come in, eat innings, and keep the team in the game. For the most part, he was able to do that. The Braves offense, though, was not really able to answer. But expectations for Jake Odorizzi, I think, are uh, probably pretty guarded here. You just wanted to have somebody else in case something went wrong or in case you needed to make a change. And with Ian Anderson being optioned finally to Triple A Gwinnett, where he will be trying to work things out over the coming weeks, we assume this was a move you had to make. You had to bring somebody in to take that spot.
2: And I think when you look at what a potential role is for Jake Odorizzi in the postseason, he is potentially a long guy for you. And that's, I mean, you need guys to yeah. eat innings. And as you, especially with Spencer Strider, where we're going to get to the point where, and I've I, you know, heard Alex Anthopoulos talk about this. Oh, we're going to talk about they that. They don't believe you. on innings limits. Yeah. They don't buy into that. But they're they're be trying to be smart about how the way they approach things. And I think Jake D'Erizi allows you to be smart with how you employ Spencer Strider and whether or not you think he might need a day off here and
1: there. Yeah, and we're going to hear from Alex Anthopoulos, who was on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game a few days ago talking with Dukes and Bell and was asked specifically by Carl and Mike, is this something that you guys are looking at? How are you approaching this? He gave a great answer. Meanwhile, Spencer Strider, after his last start, who went out and threw six and two-thirds innings and struck out 13 batters, he said, I appreciate everybody you know, being concerned for my physical well-being, but I'm going to be fine. We'll hear from Spencer Strider later on in the show as well, as we will get into that. But I do think that Jake Odorizzi added a level of depth to something that you needed, and now they have that in place. And speaking of depth, uh, the Braves added a couple of other pieces I think that strengthen up this bench. Outfielder Robbie Grossman's a switch hitter. He's worn out lefties this year. I think you pair him with Eddie Rosario, who's been heating up in recent weeks. You've got to get something out of Eddie, most certainly. But having somebody who can also go out there and play left field so that you don't have to put Marcelo Zuna out there if you don't need to. I think was a must. Alex Antopoulos able to check that off. And also getting back Ere Adrianza, who was on the World Series team last year, wasn't doing much in Washington, but Robinson Cano wasn't doing much in Atlanta. So making this move with a more versatile player that you can use as a pinch runner, among other things, and he plays four or five positions. That just seemed to be something that checked another box for the Braves. Not the sexiest of moves, but some necessary moves.
2: I like the Grossman deal. One eighty-nine WRC plus against lefties, a mere twenty-eight against righties. So Heat is not going to see the field. Eddie Rosario is getting them when there's a right-handed pitcher on the mound. Yeah. You can use Grossman against left-handers in those situations. Again, you mentioned the, the benefit there of not having Azuna in the field. I think it just the makes a well. It just makes a, it, it just makes a <laughs> lot of sense. I mean, he, and, and much like the what they did with Jorge Soler and Jock Peterson and Eddie Rosario. You're getting a guy who has a resume, and you're getting him on a on a buy-low situation here. He's had seasons of you know hitting above league average. He's hit 23 home runs in a season. We'll see if they can pull it off again another year later uh, with Grossman in terms of getting uh, some product here out of a guy that they got at the deadline.
1: Yeah, and Grossman was a 2020 guy for the Tigers in 2021. He's also had a long string of errorless games, so you know he's a competent fielder. He can play right field. He can play left field if you need him to either way you've got a little bit of versatility there. And again, Adrianza, I think, just you talk about culture and you talk about guys you know. You know what to expect from them. You know what they bring in addition to what you hope to get out of them on the field. All of those little pieces do matter. And if you were wondering how much it matters, as Corey mentioned, if you're you know putting Luke Jackson on a plane to New York just to make sure everybody's you know feeling the vibes that they are accustomed to feeling after you move some pieces around, all of this stuff matters. All of it fits in somewhere when you're baking this thing up. And if you leave out an ingredient sometimes, You may not be happy with what you pull out of the oven, and this weekend might be a decent example of that. Be that as it may, a very big deal was handed out by the Braves. A franchise record contract was handed out uh, on Monday prior to the trade deadline as Austin Riley agreed to a 10-year, $212 million extension with the Braves. It also includes an 11th-year option. So uh, conceivably, he's here for over a decade, Corey. We were there as Austin talked about the fact that this is where he wanted to be, and that's what went into making this decision. The $200-plus plus million does doesn't hurt, but the Braves have locked up a cornerstone player, and that goes with a list of cornerstone guys and, and building blocks that Alex Anthopoulos has locked up here for years to come.
2: I, I just want to know what Alex Anthopoulos says to these guys. I mean, is he like – I mean, he is is literally the contract whisperer because you think about the market value that he's getting these guys for. I mean, everyone believes it's – you know, these are club-friendly deals. He got a club-friendly deal with uh, Ronald Cunha Jr. Mm-hmm. and Ozzy Albies mm-hmm. and Matt Olson, and now – Austin Riley. If you think about the, the what other third basemen are making, Manny Machado 30, 30 million per year, Nolan Arenado thirty two point five, Anthony Rendon leads the position at thirty five million. He's making fourteen million dollars in Austin Riley a year, and he's not playing baseball right now. Right. It's I mean it's just unbelievable what they're getting, and this could be an absolute steal of what we've seen this year and last year, become the norm for a guy who has squarely put himself in the MVP conversation.
1: I mean, if he's able to make himself, which he has thus far, a four- or five-win player uh, over the course of this contract, as far as wins above replacement is concerned, whether you want to use baseball reference, whether you want to use fan grass, whether you want to make up your own, if he's able to do that over the course of the next 10 years, this contract is more than paid for itself, and you've answered one of the, I think, the key positions for any club, which is you know having power on the corners, both in the outfield And on the infield, at least traditionally as you're building a club, that's where you expect to get some of your power numbers from. They've got a guy that they feel can give them 30 to 40 homers a year, who can play a very capable third base, and who, oh, by the way, is moving into the prime years of his career so he could, conceivably, get even better. You've got him across the diamond from somebody that you got locked in for eight years. You've got your right fielder locked down for another, what, six years in his current contract. There's some options on the end of that And then you've got Ozzie Albies, who obviously hurt right now, is not able to make a big contribution. This does bring some other questions, though. What about Dansby Swanson as he goes towards free agency? That's going to be a big one for Alex Anthopoulos and company to, to navigate and to hopefully figure that whole position out, regardless of whether it's Dansby or somebody else you have to realize how much Dansby Swanson has meant to this club and how much he has contributed over the course of his stay in Atlanta, particularly to a series winner last year and this year being one of the club's best players all around.
2: I mean, Freed and Swanson are the next guys that I think everyone's going to have on their list of, of who should be next, and we'll see if, if they end up pulling the trigger on either one of those. I mean, certainly Swanson are ready to enter free agency. I will say Austin Riley told me in the past he would hold these winter hitting camps with his dad uh, back in Mississippi because he wanted to get money for the wintertime so he could go out and buy hunting gear. Austin Riley, you can now buy
1: whatever
2: you want. No more hitting camps.
1: I'm pretty sure he can go out and buy the land. He can <laughs> afford to have it stocked a certain way. He can, you know, I would imagine he could also get some very nice endorsements from yep. certain hunting gear companies and whatnot. But since this is not a hunting show, we're going to leave that to Austin Riley. But the Braves went big game hunting for another contract extension. Alex Anthopoulos got his man on Monday. So that will wrap up this week in Braves Baseball. It was a busy one. Atlanta battling with the New York Mets and an 11-game road trip going on. The trade deadline, and Austin-Riley extension, all kinds of stuff. But we're going to turn our attention to what else has happened across the world of Major League Baseball as we get some of the biggest stories of the week. they will happen next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
1: And welcome back. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We're here at the Kia studios. If you like what you've heard on the show, we got lots of brazen baseball talk for you. Make sure you find From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast. And, of course, on the Odyssey app. So, Corey, let's jump into some of the biggest stories. Usually I reserve this time and call it three up and three down, and we try to get to about half a dozen of these things. But I feel like this was a week that had so much chalked in that we're just really going to circle in on a few big topics. And I I want to start out this with a bit of a tribute or remembrance, if you will, for one of the great baseball people, one of the greatest people in the history of baseball, regardless of what role they ever held, whether that was a player, a coach, a manager, an executive, or, yes, a broadcaster, because I'm talking about Vin Scully. When the news came down earlier this week that Vin had passed, obviously a long and, and uh, illustrious career, a long and wonderful life at 94 years old. The Dodgers announced the passing of their Hall of Fame voice and uh, one of the guys that narrated Summers for seven decades, which is an incredible, incredible career to think about. Uh, and as somebody who has, you know, dabbled in baseball broadcasting for a couple of decades, I'm in awe of somebody being able to accomplish what he did. But it wasn't just what he did. It was how he did it. It was everything that that went with making Vin Scully a true original and one of the great voices in the history of the game and one of the great people in the history of the game. Uh, how will you remember Vin Scully?
2: I mean, think about the mere fact alone that he was working by himself calling games and how seamless he was able to mix in stories and, and the game action. And I mean, you know, 25 World Series, 12 All-Star games, 18 no-hitters, three perfect games— And he was never a cliche. It was never some signature home run call that every time a guy went deep, this is what he said, you know, nothing, no, you know, none of that stuff. I mean, he was just, it was an appreciation for the game. It was a love for the game. And it was just, just welcoming people into this thing that he had such a passion for and, um, you know, I had just one very brief encounter with with Vin back mm-hmm. when he was still traveling with the the Dodgers back in 2013, and they came to Turner Field. We were sitting uh, in the media lunchroom there, and you know, it was getting re- getting a little uh, close ups of game time and wrapping up, and and he comes walking through by our table and stops and says, "Hello, boys!" and just turn like Vin Scully just stopped and said hi to us. And it's like yeah. you know, and, and it, I mean, I, I've heard so many different accounts of how people yeah. say, you know, he everyone was his friend and he loved everybody and he was like that with it, but just I mean. I don't just it, it, he just had this way about him, mm-hmm. uh, and just in, even in a brief encounter, you can understand why you know he touched so many lives the way he did.
1: Yeah, and, and whether you were a fan, just tuning into a broadcast, whether you had the opportunity to run into Vin Scully and spend a few moments with him, whether you worked for years with him, whether you never worked with him at all, and you just happened to be at a ballpark on a day that Vin you know walked through, then you had the opportunity to truly experience who exactly this man was and how exactly he lived his life and went about his career. And you brought up something interesting, you know, when you talk about working alone as a play by play broadcaster and trying to stitch together all of the pieces that make a good broadcast. As somebody who has tried to do that and, and can uh, certainly attest to this, it is a very difficult job to put all of those pieces together and then to go back out and do it 162 times or 161 more times. And then if you really are able to, you know, master your craft at that point, then you got some even bigger games waiting after that, but Vin Scully was more than speaking in sound bites. He was a narrator. He was a storyteller. He was your friend at the ballpark, giving you the the accounts and descriptions, as they say, of that game and making you feel like you're right there. Because the biggest thing I feel like you know that that Vin uh, embodied was that whole. Pull up a chair, kind of feeling for the broadcast. That's something I feel is synonymous with Vince Scully, his style and his tenor. And I think we've gotten to this point where I think a lot of us are, are guilty of this,
2: where when you work in sports media, you work in sound bites. And I think the fact that he was never about that. I mean, think not that I'm trying to call anybody out, but you think about how you know the, the Yankees have John Sterling, and John Sterling's thing is that he makes up these rhyming things with you know all the players and mm-hmm. everyone stand, Here comes the judge. That was just so far from what. The era was in what Vince Scully was, and he never changed. He never said, "Okay, everybody else is doing this thing now. I need to be a little bit more, you know, in line with the way guys are now calling games." He just he stayed Vince Scully to the very end, and I think that's maybe the the most. Uh, I mean, the, the most glowing tribute to him is that he never changed, even while so much around him did, and nobody ever expected him to be anything but himself.
1: Now, he began his career for the Brooklyn Dodgers. So if you want to think about how long ago it was when Vin Scully first cracked the mic, he worked with the legendary Red Barber. There was a photo I saw going around on social media that was Vin Scully and Jackie Robinson on ice skates. Just the fact that you're in a photo like that, and and you just, you, you know, you have the long and, and rich life. To, to be here with us all the way into the year 2022, and you were standing side-by-side side with Jackie Robinson. You were seeing, you know, literally, I, and I think that this is the, the biggest thing that struck me and in, in what I said in, in my tweet after finding that he had, he had passed away. And, and let me tell you, my tweet feels like uh, so not enough to really encapsulate what was Vin Scully, but this was a bridge to baseball's past. This was, you know, the the best of of generations of baseball because he touched literal generations of baseball fans throughout his career. He did, and I think we oftentimes, you
2: know, in sports media, we use the terms "giant" and "legend." I mean, a little bit, maybe a little bit too loosely, but he was very—I mean, he was every bit that, right? And I think everybody who follows and, and, and covers baseball and you know, in broadcasts baseball, you know, has, has takes a little bit of something from him. And I, I obviously, everyone wants to have their own little way of doing things, but mm-hmm. I don't know that you'll—I—I I, I could not imagine 162 games of doing this all by yourself and the level of preparation. That it takes. i be I mean, a little less. I put a lot of time into preparing for this show. I couldn't imagine preparing <laughs> sure. each and every day to do a game by yourself and, and making it seem so seamless and having the stories and making the calls and talking to people and just having that wealth of knowledge. Um, it's, it's just dumbfounding to think what he was able to accomplish for
1: decades. Yeah, absolutely incredible. We could spend the rest of our show talking about the effect and the impact of Vin Scully and all of the things that he has done uh, and, and accomplished throughout his Hall of Fame career. But I can tell you this, a, a true icon of baseball, a, a true legend of the game passing away this week. And a lot of people, as you can see, the outpouring of tributes to Vin Scully just lets you know how impactful he was, his voice was, on so many generations of baseball fans and of baseball people All the like. So uh, let's shift gears if we can and talk about the other big story from the week, which was, of course, the trade deadline. And I don't think anybody made more headlines at the deadline than the San Diego Padres. They pulled off a blockbuster trade to get Juan Soto and Josh Bell, who's not a bad player, but to get Juan Soto out to San Diego, the Padres gave up a big time gaggle of prospects and brought over a couple of big pieces from the Washington Nationals. They also pulled off a blockbuster trade with the Brewers by getting all star closer Josh Hader and adding them to a club that was already in wildcard contention, holding on to a wildcard spot. So, Corey, as we start to size up the big movers and shakers, the winners and the losers, and the surprises of the trade deadline, I don't know if anybody got as much out of what they did than the San Diego Padres. And I don't know that anybody encapsulated winners and surprises
2: more than the Padres did. I mean, think about. Obviously, going out and getting Juan Soto, but I don't think anybody, any of us thought that Josh Hader was available. And then they go out and get a guy who, you know, is probably the best closer in baseball right now. And certainly the Padres mortgage their future to get this. I mean, this is the closest thing I can think of in, besides Herschel Walker going to the Vikings. And certainly, you, you know, remember what that meant for the Dallas Cowboys and how Quite they were bit, able to yes. set up, you know— Five players, six draft picks, what it meant for them, but this is not an NFL show. You think about what this could mean for that Padres offense when Fernando Tatis Jr. gets back, and you think about a four-batter run in any order, of Tatis, Soto, Machado, and Bell, and that is an absolute nightmare for any offense. I, barring a collapse, they are not getting the National League West crown. That's going to be the Dodgers. They're up you know, by double-digit games here. But this is a star-studded San Diego lineup, and it sets it up where, it, going back to the Braves, You do not want to be in a best-of-three series against an offense like this, against a team that has the starting pitching the Padres do Mm -hmm. and a closer like Josh Hader. Um, This is going to be a very, very dangerous out in the postseason, especially if Tatis gets back and – uh, man, just the fact that they were able to add Hater to this mix—I know it's going to be—it's not the the move that everyone's talking about when you get a 23-year-old guy who looks like he's on the trek to make it to Cooperstown. But uh, what a massive uh, trade deadline for the San Diego Padres!
1: No, it truly was. I mean, I think this could go down as one of the biggest trades in baseball history, and that's not hyperbole whatsoever because you don't see guys like this changing teams at that age, and. with two full seasons before he was going to go to free agency, and there were a lot of things in the mix for uh, Washington, I guess, to have the motivation to even explore this kind of trade, and I don't know if motivation's the right word, but you know, it it is what it is. The Washington Nationals were sellers. The San Diego Padres were buyers, and they went out there and they got one of the best hitters, if not the best all-around hitter in baseball, and they added that to their mix. They got Josh Hader. They also added Brandon Drury because, you know, they needed to go out and get somebody with a little more (laughs) power, I guess, uh, to complement this club, but Uh, An absolutely outstanding deadline for them. Oh, and by the way, you've got Fernando Tatis here in the next week to you know something, some point in in the month of August, jumping back in this mix. He'll be playing shortstop. He could be playing some outfield for him. They're going to utilize him. Uh, We've talked about what the Braves have done. Quite obviously, Uh, on the flip side of the Josh Hader trade, you kind of have to wonder a little bit um, about what the Brewers were were doing there, what their motivations were for this. They got Taylor Rogers, who was closing games for the Padres. He'd been struggling. Josh Hader, though in a small sample size, had been struggling in July. So, I don't know. If you want to look at that as a reason to trade him, I guess you can. I think it was more about the Brewers not wanting to pay Josh Hader a big, fat number through arbitration. Uh, But then, I don't know. This was just one of those deals that kind of uh, came out of nowhere for you. But it's a deal that you can make if you have a guy like Devin Williams, and they were able to back this up, the Brewers they being, by getting Matt Bush and Trevor Rosenthal and trying to strengthen this bullpen. But it's hard to take – you know, the head of the dragon off, and send him off somewhere else, and try to scare everybody the same way you used to. Devin Williams
2: is absolutely nasty, right? But I, I, he's a he's a closer in the making, and I don't know that a team that's that's in first place in their division needs to be trading away a major asset like that unless you're going to get something in return that fixes a deficiency in your roster. And they didn't do that. No. I mean, they needed offense, and you think that they could have easily dealt him to have gotten JD Martinez or somebody else, you know, along those lines if you were looking to you know, make a maneuver to go out and get offense, there would have been opportunities to get it. And I thought, you know, it was really interesting. They've they've won one game since the trade deadline. And Christian Yelich, you know, talking about, you know, you said you'd be lying if it didn't have an effect. Uh, The fact that they don't have Josh Hader there any longer. I mean, I I just don't, it just makes no sense to me whatsoever. I don't know what message they were sending to that clubhouse, trading him away in the midst of a a pennant chase.
1: Here's the other thing I thought was that, you know, perhaps... If you're trading Josh Hader, then you're moving things around in hoping to make other bigger moves. But they didn't make other bigger moves. I mean, yeah, you do have Devin Williams, and he is one of the best relievers in baseball, and now he's going to be handed those closers duties. Yeah, you went out and you got a couple of other bullpen arms to strengthen things, but as a first-place club, you would have been thinking more help would be walking through the door than, to Christian Yelich's point, having to think, hey, how much did our roster just change? Because our guy who was kind of... Yet more times than not, Mr. Automatic is no longer part of our bullpen. That's going to have a, an effect on the psyche of a club. Uh, looking around baseball, around the National League in particular, of course, we know that the New York Mets were busy. They didn't land JD Martinez, who a lot of people had them linked to. They did get Darren Ruff, they got Dan Vogelbach, uh, and they were able to, you know, uh, and add Tyler Naquin, as a matter of fact. And all of these may not be the biggest names that moved at the trade deadline, but they've all played a pretty good role in beating up on the Atlanta Braves in a five game series in New York over the weekend. So, Perhaps they did get the right guys. Uh, The Los Angeles Dodgers, meanwhile, they were unable to land Juan Soto. A lot of people thought that they would be able to. Uh, They went out they got Chris Martin. They got Joey Gallo as well. We've talked a lot about him. I don't want to waste a ton of time on the show, but that seems like the exact kind of project that the Los Angeles Dodgers can pride themselves on if they can turn around Joey Gallo's season and perhaps his career.
2: I think they, this shows the gall of the Dodgers, that they think that they can turn Joey Gallo around right now because this guy's an absolute mess. Um, I don't know that he's going to get the consistent abs that he needs to be able to get his swing right in that Dodgers lineup. They're too deep. I just don't think there's enough opportunities for him to get. He's a fantastic defender. I just don't think they have enough. I thought one of the teams that did really well in the National League at the deadline was the Cardinals. They needed to go out and do something to help that pitching staff that's down Jack Flaherty, that doesn't have Steven Matz. Um, the fact that they were able to go out and get Jose Quintana, you know, that they got um, you know, uh, Jordan Montgomery from the Yankees, I think they were a big winner because I think they've got enough now with that offense. I think they're taking down the Brewers in the central race.
1: I mean, you have to feel like the balance of power may have just shifted by the moves that you make. And, of course, the moves that you don't make in, in terms of the Brewers, because if you are going to make that big trade, as I mentioned, make a giant subtraction, then you probably need to go out and make more than one addition that is of impact, and they just simply weren't able to do that. The Dodgers, meanwhile, they, they pulled off the big blockbuster last year, the getting Max Scherzer and getting Trey Turner. They weren't really able to do that. There was some talk of this about, you know, maybe Shohei Otani stays in L.A., but moves across to play at Dodger Stadium. Uh, The Angels came out and squashed all of the Otani talk and said, "Look, we're we're not interested in moving him, but thanks for asking." You know, they weren't able to land one of the big starters in Luis Castillo or uh, Frankie Montas, Uh, and so I feel like you know, if you're the Dodgers, I don't know that you need it a lot. They get Chris Taylor back from injury. We'll talk a little bit more about this later, but. I mean, this is a club that's about as complete as it gets, so it's really kind of a case of the rich get richer when they do go out and pull off one of these big blockbuster trades. They just didn't do it. Does that surprise you, especially with San Diego pulling off the Juan Soto trade, that the Dodgers didn't have some kind of metaphorical answer for that?
2: I thought they were going to get some starting pitching just because of the fact that they do have injury concerns. I mean, Clayton Kershaw's back in the IL. When are they going to get Walker Buehler back? I thought yeah. maybe they might yeah. be a team. Carlos Rodon would have made a lot of sense for them it's to true. just move over you know, into into the division there. I was really surprised that they didn't do that. Uh, J- Joey Gallo is a strange addition. I, again, I just don't I just don't think it makes sense. I think if you struggled in one massive market, another one doesn't make a whole lot of sense.
1: No, it certainly doesn't. we got a lot of trade deadline to talk about as we continue here on From the Diamond. We're going to be taking a look around what's going on in the American League, what's going on in the National League. We'll size up some more of the winners, the losers, and where these clubs stand as we take a look at all of the races across baseball. He's Corey McCartney. I'm Grant McCauley. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Alright, our place for all
0: things MLB and our Braves. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game.
1: And welcome back. From the Diamond with Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you. Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. We are here in the Kia studios wrapping up a Sunday and wrapping up a weekend that has been a miserable stave for the Braves up at City Field as the New York Mets have been putting it to them. They swept a doubleheader on Saturday to sew up the series win and things have continued to unravel on Sunday as well. We're going to take a look around what's going on in the American League though at this time and kind of size up some of these races. We're not surprised to see where the New York Yankees are. Ten and a half games in front of the Toronto Blue Jays who have you know, really not been able to make up a lot of ground on the Yankees. They've been playing 500 ball for the last week and a half, have uh, both clubs. In fact, the Yankees under 500 over the last 10 games. But nobody's really making that big push. The interesting thing I do, or I look at, as we go down these uh, American League standings, and we're going to talk a lot about how these trades affect all of the races across baseball. I don't know that the balance of power was ever going to shift in the American League uh, Eastern Division because you knew what the New York Yankees had done, and they went out, they got Frankie Montas, and they were able to make a couple of other smart trades, I think, that kind of complemented their roster, which was already great. But the Baltimore Orioles made the decision to trade off Trey Mancini I found that to be kind of a curious move because they really didn't get that much for him in my eyes, and I'm just not really sure why you make a move like that that doesn't really help your club out altogether that much because I feel like they could have made an effort to keep Trey Mancini there because of what he meant to the franchise. And then again, you really didn't get much from the Houston Astros for him, at least from where I'm sitting.
2: Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that Mike Elias, their GM, left open the possibility of his coming back. And obviously, we know that rarely ever happens. Maybe this is one of the rare occurrences, though, when a guy actually does come back after being dealt away. But I thought it was weird, too, that the Orioles dealt Jorge Lopez to the Twins. you got a guy that's got club control two more years. If you think you're going to be better next year, much like the Angels with Rossio Iglesias, why would you trade a closer if you think you're going to be a team that they could contend in the next one to two years when you have this guy under club control. Uh, but to go back to the Yankees, their deals met their goals. They got another elite starter in Montas. They got one of the league's best defensive center fielders in Harrison Bader to take pressure off of Aaron Judge. They got more corner support with Ben Intendi. They got bullpen help after Michael King's season-ending injury that with Trevino and Efros. Uh, and they unloaded Joey Gallo, who was really struggling. So yeah. um, I, I just thought they had one of the better deadlines, and, and certainly – this is not a crisis that they've lost. They lost three games in a row, two to the Mariners and one to the Cardinals for their their last five. Uh, this is still a very, very good baseball team, and they have much fewer holes uh, after what they pulled off at the deadline.
1: Yeah, I guess I just look at the Orioles, you know, to kind of complete the thought on that—a club that's you know inside of two games out of a wild card now, and is four games over five hundred as of the close of the weekend. And I don't really feel like they made anybody pay through the teeth to get either Trey Mancini or to get Lopez in the case of the Minnesota Twins. I mean, I guess we'll find out and we'll talk about the Twins because they were a, a rather busy club as well. But, you know, this just wasn't what I expected, I guess, from the Baltimore Orioles. But I also didn't expect to be talking about the Baltimore Orioles in a playoff race in August. But I think that kind of underscores exactly how odd the trade deadline can be at times. It's not necessarily, you know, the rich getting richer to use that phrase again. Sometimes it's, you know, clubs with an opportunity to do more or that, you know, end up doing nothing, and you kind of have to question why. Uh, just looking up and down the uh, American League East, though, I mean, the Toronto Blue Jays were a club that has been in the position of chasing the New York Yankees. They're in position for a wild card right now, most certainly. They were rumored to be out there, maybe after Rysel Iglesias, maybe after Noah Syndergaard. Uh, they ended up getting a couple of relievers, Zach Pop and Anthony Bass from the Marlins, Mitch White from the Dodgers. These weren't necessarily, though, the reinforcements you thought that the Blue Jays might end up getting. They just really weren't able to, I think, pull off a, a bigger deal. I mean, I guess Whit Merrifield will be helpful, but not if you were you know, maybe aspiring to get Ian Happ. I will
2: say, though, they were part of one of the weirder dramas at the deadline because they acquire Whit Merrifield not knowing whether or not Whit Merrifield was actually going to get vaccinated to be able to play games in Toronto yeah. for the Blue Jays. But he, luckily he did. He's yeah, he going to is. be able to yeah. play home games there uh, but the lover of chaos of me would have uh, would have wanted to see what, how in the world they were going to pull this off if he only played in road games. But um, he's still versatile, plays second, third, center, can steal bases. They got some bullpen depth. They got some starting pitching depth with White. Um, obviously, they've got Alex Manoa, Kevin Gosman, Jose Barrios, Ross Stripling. There, I, th- I just I think the key for this team is Jose Barrios because you're talking about a two-time All Star, you know, a guy who's had a top ten Cy Young finish, has a 5.19 ERA this season. Mm. If Manoa and Grossman continue to be what they've been. Uh, Barrios to me, uh, Gossman, yeah, uh, yeah uh, uh, Kevin Gosman. If uh, um, one brave, former brave, uh, but if, if Manoa <laughs> and if Manoa and, and Gosman can be that one-two for you, and you're able to get Barrios looking like he used to, this is going to be a very, very tough team in the postseason. But yeah. they they could have a big drop off if he can't look like he did in the past. Yeah, I
1: didn't think we'd spend a lot of time talking about um, you know some of the 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 levels that we've gotten to with. You know some of the trades that are made, some of the names that have moved or not moved. But you know here we are, in in some cases just trying to dissect the moves that you know a club doesn't make as much as moves that a club does make. And as I look over into the central, you knew Minnesota and Cleveland were both battling each other, you know tooth and nail for that division. Cleveland didn't really do much of anything, whereas the Twins they went out and added quite a bit. You mentioned that they were able to go out and. Add Jorge Lopez. They also got Michael Fulmer. They picked him up from the Tigers. But Tyler Malley is uh, is a pretty big get. And uh, oh, the thought that I wanted to complete that I didn't actually complete before rambling on and on for a minute was, I didn't expect us to spend as much time for the Toronto Blue Jays talking about last year's trade deadline acquisition. That's where I was going. that. Okay. just wanted to complete that <laughs> thought so I can move to the next line in my own brain because that would have bugged me for the next 10 minutes. Uh, Be that as it may, though, the Minnesota Twins got stronger. They added in a bunch of different levels, and I think that their pitching staff really needed to be bolstered the way that it was.
2: I don't understand the White Sox and Guardians at this deadline. The White Sox got Jake Diekman from uh, from, the—they go out and get Jake Diekman, who helps their bullpen a little bit. The Guardians got Ian Hamilton from the Twins for Sandy Leone. They did next to nothing. The White Sox did next to nothing. Meanwhile, the Twins get Tyler Malley, as you mentioned, Lopez, Fulmer, Leone— whether or not you think they pay overpaid for Lopez, they gave up four pitching prospects to do it. Lopez, you know, obviously he strengthens up the back end there. I think they created clear separation in that division mm-hmm. with this deadline. Um, they get you know gave up top uh, top three, uh, three of their top 25 prospects to get Malley. Uh, but I just think they did such a fantastic job at the deadline.
1: And here's why that's so important to to kind of add on to that, because if you can win the Central, you do not have to get yourself involved with the American League East. And that doesn't mean, oh, well, the Yankees, well, yeah, you're going to see them in the playoffs uh, conceivably. But the other teams that are chasing the Yankees are all at or near the top of the wild card standing. So, you know, good luck with that. If you look at the Cleveland Guardians, 56 and 52 as we sit here uh, you know recording this show as of the action of Sunday. Cleveland has the same record as the Baltimore Orioles. The Baltimore Orioles were a team many people thought were going to lose 100 games this year and they didn't do a lot to bolster themselves at the trade deadline either as we talked about, not to circle over and over and over again, but I am surprised to your point, the Guardians and the White Sox both did uh, pretty much nothing about the bare minimum that you could do at the trade deadline. And now you cannot even spend the time in the month of August to entertain oh, well, we can get a guy that sneaks through waivers because you can't do that anymore. That's not a thing for whatever reason. You know, Major League Baseball got rid of that, and I'm sure there's a good reason. I'm sure somebody can tell me about it at some point. Uh, Looking out in the American League West, we see the Houston Astros at the top of this uh, heap, but you also see the Seattle Mariners 11 half games back. Yep, that kind of is what it is. The Mariners, though, are firmly in that wild card mix as well as they are battling the Angels to close out the weekend. Seven games over 500 coming into the day on Sunday They were out there striking the first blow, I think, one of the first major dominoes of the trade deadline, by adding Luis Castillo. This is a club that's serious about trying to end that playoff drought.
2: I mean, they had one of the best moves of the deadline in getting him uh, for three of their top five prospects. They are an aggressive win-now team, and they are absolutely showing that. They're getting Ty France back uh he's back now julio rodriguez is on his way back it could be uh in uniform again august 10th when he's eligible I mean they're sitting in the last wild card spot. they would they would face the twins right now over the season uh, and they just won a series over the yankees and the bronx they're going to get them uh again in this next week uh, i just you know i just thought they had a great deadline by the way uh he, the astros got mancini that, and that we were talking about him with the mm-hmm. Orioles earlier. He hit a two-run home run on Wednesday, then hit two homers in a five-RBI day against the Guardians on Friday. He didn't grand, hit a grand slam in 701 games as an Oriole. He needed four games to do it as a Houston Astro for the first one in his there career. He's the first player in Astro's history to have his first three hits with the team go for home runs, and he is the first player in AL or NL history to homer in each of his two starts with his first two teams, because he also did it with the Orioles back in 2016. Have a career, Trey Mancini.
1: Yeah, why not? I have to wonder, it his time with the Baltimore Orioles, who, and they were not very good while he was there. How many times did he hit with the bases loaded? It probably oh, yeah. wasn't very well, many. The Houston true. Astros have a little bit more traffic out on the bases. But, yeah, that's an absurd stat. The only one that I can think of that would even come close to topping that is the Los Angeles Angels hitting seven solo home runs in a loss, only the second team <laughs> to ever do that. Um, most solo home runs in a, in a game. Uh, all their runs came via solo home runs. They lose 8-7. to seven. So that old joke that's, hey, you know, Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, but the Angels managed to do to be on the wrong side of history, showed up yet again. Of course, Mike Trout was sitting that out, though he might be resuming his baseball activities and on the way back sometime soon. I want to talk real quick about the Boston Red Sox because they, surprisingly, were not the sellers you thought they would be. They didn't move J.D. Martinez. That was a little bit surprising. Nathan Evaldi is another guy that could have moved at the deadline. Boston did not do that. Instead, they held on to Evaldi Martinez, Rich Hill, who the Braves will see in the upcoming series at Fenway Park, or they're scheduled to. They even added more veteran players because they went out and got Tommy Pham, and yeah. they traded for Eric Hosmer, who had to go somewhere because he was the, the, the link of the Juan Soto trade that made people question it for a moment before we were assured whether Hosmer goes to Washington or Luke Voigt ends up in Washington Juan Soto's going to San Diego and that's what ended up happening. But what did you make of the Boston Red Sox?
2: Oh, they got two guys that nobody really wanted in Hosmer and in Tommy Pham. I mean, I just I just don't understand at all what they did. I mean, okay, so they were getting really bad first base production from Bobby Dahlbach. He had a 642 yeah. OPS. You go out and get you get Hosmer and, and you know, he's a he's a clubhouse guy. He's obviously not the player that he used to be. Um, that was just a ridiculous saga uh, that he ultimately ends up in Boston. But I don't understand you don't move uh, you know, Bogarts. You don't move JD Martinez. You move Christian Vasquez during batting practice. Um, they mm-hmm. just had the weirdest deadline. They didn't move Ivaldi, as you mentioned. I just didn't understand. I, I mean, I know they're a team that's kind of on the cusp. You know, when you think about where they're at in terms of the deadline, they're just four they're four and a half games back. So maybe you think there's enough talent there that you can put a run together to get back into it. But the gauntlet you have to go through, still being in that that division, I just think
1: they could have done so well had they moved some of these guys. And yeah. it just
2: it just has so many free agents, looming free agents. It just doesn't make sense.
1: Maybe hesitant to ever hit any button that looks like reset up there, since they've already had to have done that in the last decade, and they don't like to do it very often. But the Boston Red Sox were the only team that entered the day in the American League East with a sub 500 record, and that pretty much tells you all you need to know when you're talking about the second week of August coming up. And the fact that you're 16 and a half games out of first place, you're really pretty far out of a wild card as well with a whole bunch of teams in front of you. What are you really doing there? And I guess Heim, Bloom, and company couldn't figure out a good exit strategy for some of these veterans. That does not make a ton of sense. You mentioned teams like Cleveland and Chicago not really doing a bunch of dealing. I think there was some interest in some other teams and other assets, rather, uh, from some other teams, like the Kansas City Royals. They did remove Whit Merrifield, and that made all the sense in the world. And they'd already traded Carlos Santana away, but they hung on to Josh Stalmont, among others, and uh, didn't really do as, as much as I thought they would. Michael A. Taylor was another name that came up as a potential fit for some clubs.
2: Yeah, they didn't do much. I thought the Tigers were going to move a lot of their guys. We spent a the lot bullpen. of, I mean, we exhausted a lot of oxygen talking about Andrew Chafin, Joe Jimenez, uh, Gregory Soto. They don't move him. Um a unrelated but related story here is uh, Miguel Cabrera and you know he's due 32 million dollars next year. He's now talking about maybe he's not going to be back for the 2023 season. He's having issues with that hurt knee. Um he wants to win a World Series in Detroit. So maybe you you know maybe you feel like you can put together a run next year and you don't want to move these guys, but I just feel like if you're the Tigers and you had all these pieces in play how many times are you going to have so many weapons that somebody else wants to help yeah. it, to help build up an, a, a position player pool that's that's not fantastic? Um, they've got a lot of young guys, but I, I just think they really missed an opportunity here. But we'll see. Uh, how much that really plays into what they want if Cabrera gets to come back and and try to set him up for a a great final season.
1: And, you know, I I can think about, we can spend some time on something I've been thinking about when it comes to the trade deadline. There's always this, this expectation for people that, oh, well, you can go get some top prospects for every one of these players. That's not necessarily the reality. So some of these, the price tags may just not have been out there. The money that they would have to send along to make some of these deals may not have been out there. Not necessarily the Tigers relievers, who I do think are valuable, but maybe some of the other pieces that did not move across the deadline. So looking across the American League, it is the Yankees by a lot in the American League East, the Twins by a little in the Central, and of course the Astros have a sizable lead in the American League West. If you look at the top wildcard teams as we sit right now, it is the Toronto Blue Jays, the Tampa Bay Rays, who made a couple of minor deals to strengthen themselves, then the Seattle Mariners, and then it's those Baltimore Orioles, the Cleveland Guardians, and Chicago White Sox, all within three games there with the Orioles and the Guardians, both within a game and a half as we record this show on a Sunday night. So that's what's happening across the American League. When we come back, we'll continue our trip around the big leagues as we look at the National League. And then, of course, we'll take a look at what's ahead for the Braves as they try to put all memory of this trip to New York behind them as they continue an 11-game road trip. We'll get to all of that next. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Now, more From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
1: And welcome back. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you. We're in the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We hope that you've enjoyed From the Diamond thus far. If you have, you can make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find it on the Odyssey app. Also, follow along with us on Twitter. Find me at Grant McCauley. Find Corey at Corey J. McCartney. And we will now find the National League standings and take a look around the big leagues in the senior circuit. It begins, of course, in the National League East where it was going to be, I think, a statement series potentially for one of these two clubs. And it's the Mets who made the statement against the Braves that They are here to stay at the top of the standings. They are not going to crumble or wilt in the summer heat and roll over the final couple of months and allow somebody else to take away the National League East, Corey. We knew this was going to say a lot about one or both of these clubs and where they stand right now with about 50 games left to go, but I think if the Braves needed any kind of reminder that the New York Mets are a totally different model than they were last year, then they got it big time at City Field over the weekend.
2: The Mets have now won or tied all 15 other series against division opponents. Uh, that's the longest streak since the Braves won 16 straight in 1999. If they keep this going, they have a Friday through Sunday series next weekend against the Phillies. They'll go for the record the following week here in Atlanta. So, I mean, these, these are not the Mets of yore that are going to just crumble and let the Braves end up taking this division. Uh, if the Braves are going to make it five straight, they are going to have to earn it.
1: You know, I think if there was a way for me to describe the Mets and, and from for most Braves fans, I mean, number one, you need to recognize, as I said before, this is not the club that has fallen apart in years past, including 2021, that everybody got hurt or everybody just forgot how to play baseball or whatever happened last year, I don't know. This is not that club. They went out and they got some real ball players over the winter that really made that club better, whether it was Max Scherzer, whether it was Starling Marte, whether it was Marcana, whether it was several other moves. Oh, by the way, you know, Buck Showalter, sometimes he gets a lot of I, I don't know. It maybe doesn't get a lot of credit because he hasn't gone in the postseason and been able to, you know, really, you know, capture a run that really validates him as one of the better managers in, in baseball over the course of the last three decades. But he has been an integral piece on multiple different clubs, getting a team up into that level and ready to take that next step and doing some winning in the regular season. And now it appears that he has put them on a trajectory, of, along with the way that this club is playing itself, because it's the players out there on the field. It ain't the manager. But all of the pieces have really come together for the Mets in a way that it's been a perfect storm.
2: It has, and, and I think oftentimes when you get a guy uh, as a manager, when you go through a change and you want, and, and the, the clear message is that we want a guy who you know is is somebody who is very comfortable in front of a camera. And obviously, you know, he's done a lot of TV work in in the past yep. uh, before coming back into this role. I think you you wonder, okay, are you looking for a figurehead? Certainly, he sets the tenor in that clubhouse. I mean, I just think the fact, he just works for this club. And I just think it's just, it's an interesting mix. And they're just, there's not a lot of holes outside of, you know, the catcher spot. And I was really Mm -hmm. surprised that they weren't a little bit more aggressive at the deadline in getting that. But, I mean, he's got a a really great roster. And certainly now you have Jacob DeGrom back looking like uh, the Jacob DeGrom we're used to. And this this is an extremely tough Mets team.
1: Yeah, and let me put it politely. What I feel like is more the sentiment that I'm getting, you know, from Braves fans is that, You know, people are realizing how good this team is. They're annoyingly good. I mean, they do a lot of little things well. They do stuff that should not really even work the way that it works for them in terms of, you know, they do put the ball in play, and that's great, but the batted ball luck has been extremely favorable to them. The Braves are a club that is kind of the polar opposite of that, and we're seeing that contrast in styles really not play out well in the Braves' favor. We're also seeing, I think, on the Braves' side, defensive lapses. We're seeing the cumulative effect of of the kind of at bats that the Mets are having against the Braves' starting pitchers, that has been a big issue, and the Mets are simply making the most of their opportunities. But the difference in the offense, Corey, is pretty stark. It is, and I
2: mean, we watched uh, you know during this game here, we watched Pete Alonso get another soft hit ball. I mean, they they are 17th in average exit velocity, 88.4 miles an hour. They are 26th in hard hit rate, 26th, and they match that by being sixth in batting average on balls in play. Those two things should not match up. To a team that is in the, the top five in runs scored in baseball, but right. there they are—they're just behind the Braves. They they went into Sunday scoring two fewer runs than the Braves, who have the hardest hit, the highest hardest hit rate in baseball. The Mets, the way that they're scoring runs and the way that they're conducting themselves offensively is not the the profile that you expect for a team in 2022. No. And, I, it, and it's not, you don't go out and anticipate that we're going to get a lot of infield hits. They lead the no. majors in infield hits somehow. I mean, it's you think this stuff, okay, eventually this is going to come back to get them because you can't have a baby up over 300 in a, in a hard hit rate that that's, that's that low, but they're getting it done like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, and we can spend all the time poring over all the stats and trying to make them say what you want them to say, but when it comes to the Mets, it really doesn't matter. And what yep. matters to them is what the record is. And the fact is they're 30 games over 500 and they are you know, building a very comfortable division lead. Now they have had this before. So I'm going to bring this all the way back to, and the British can't count on having another 14 game winning streak that trims seven, eight, nine games off of a deficit. So they can't afford to fall 10 and a half games back again. That's pretty obvious. So the Braves are going to have to make things happen against a schedule that I think is a little bit tougher than what the Mets are going to be facing over the final, I don't know, um, what 50 games of the season thereabouts. And then you look at the fact that, and I thought this was interesting because somebody said that you know the Braves don't have a winning record over clubs uh, of against clubs over 500. Well, I went back and looked, and pretty much there's five teams that do, and they're all division leaders. The other 25 teams in baseball don't have a winning record over clubs over 500. Mm-hmm. So. You know, congrats to the Mets. They certainly do. They're eight games over against teams with a 500 or better record. The Braves are four games under, so it's not like they're, you know, absolutely just unable to beat a team with a winning record. Though, if you watch what happened on the weekend over at City Field, it might lead you to believe that. But the St. Louis Cardinals are six games under 500 against teams with winning records. They're 11 games over 500 overall. So I say that to say it's an interesting stat, and we can make stats say a lot of different things. But the bottom line is all of the stats have added up to the Mets being exactly where they are and for reasons beyond how hard they hit the ball and how often you know they're able to hit home runs. The Braves hit the ball harder than just about anybody. They hit more home runs than just about anybody. They do strike out more than just about anybody, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it short circuits their offense all of the time. This has just been a very a very stark difference, to use that word again, in the way that these two teams play. And I think that the key to beating the Mets is you got to find a way to outpitch them, and the Braves were unable to do that in the series, and that has not happened head-to-head against these two clubs the last two times they've met. All of that aside, and we will talk more about the Atlanta Braves a little bit later, I did want to circle in on some of these trades. We talked about what the Mets did, what the Braves did. Philadelphia Phillies went out and got Noah Syndergaard. I thought that was an interesting move for them. Not necessarily a name that I ever thought would be pitching as Citizens Bank Park, but there he is. Uh, they were also able to go out and get Brandon Marsh and David Robertson. Uh, they said goodbye to Juris Familia, the former Mets. And this is a, a Phillies club that, since firing Joe Girardi, has found its way all the way into the wild card picture, which was a pretty steep climb for them. And they're doing all of this without Bryce Harper.
2: So a couple things here. Uh, obviously, with Noah Syndergaard, you, you get a knee, uh, the kind of arm that you need to, to replace Zach Eflin, who's got a right knee issue, to put along with Aaron Nolan and Wheeler. But I think we all know, you know, to tie to another Thor, that he has moved from Yolnir to Stormbreaker because he's not exactly wielding the same weapon that he used to anymore. No. The four-seamer um, is the lowest it's ever been in a full season for Cindergard. The, the weighted-on-base average is the highest. So is the hard hit rate. Um, he had, was having a quality season with the Angels there, but I think this is one of those deals, though, where you look at at, at the potential return being, uh, you know, being a, pretty massive for them if they could get him back on track to what he used to be. If he ultimately just ends up being, and much in the way we're talking about, Jake Odorizzi with the Braves, a guy that can give you quality starts and an elevated name to do so, I think that they got what they needed from, from Noah Syndergaard. Yeah. In in terms of what they've gotten from their uh, the bullpen edition here with David Robertson, since Rob Thompson took over as the, the interim manager on June 3rd, they're tied with the Dodgers for the sixth-best bullpen in the majors. Think about how bad this bullpen used to be. That is no longer the case. They move on from Juris Familia. Uh, Robertson's going to move into that role. I mean, this has been a, a, a much better... Phillies bullpen, and now they ad- they added they added the best reliever that we knew was on the market. I mean, Josh Hader was obviously moved, but this was the H- Rossio Iglesias, This was the best bullpen arm that we knew was going to be moved in the form of David Robertson. They do that and. Also, when you talk about the Nationals, they could end up benefiting the most from them because they play them more times than anybody does over the last part of the schedule. So if the Phillies end up in the postseason, the Nationals could be a big reason why.
1: Yeah, because the Nationals are not a great baseball club already. Now they don't have Juan Soto. They don't have Josh Bell. So the vestiges of anything that looked like a club that was going to go out there and be even pseudo-competitive probably going to continue losing some games. They've lost five in a row since the trade deadline and I would expect them to continue sinking in the standings already, uh, what, 38 games under five hundred? So by my simple math, that's pretty bad for a season, and you don't want to be there. Let's do talk, though, about what the Washington Nationals got in the Juan Soto trade. Mackenzie Gore, C.J. Abrams, uh, Robert Hassel, James Wood, uh, Yarlan Susana, and then they got Luke Voigt because uh, Eric Hosmer didn't want to go there. Uh, But as far as the prospect hall is concerned, and we talked about this being one of the biggest trades in baseball history, if you do have to deal a Juan Soto this is the kind of package of prospects and young players that you do want to get back if you're a club like Washington.
2: So I've seen James Wood up close and personal, six seven, two hundred and forty pounder. He was committed to Mississippi State before he ultimately got drafted by the Nationals and signed. This dude has ridiculous power. So you've got him, uh, you've got a guy in, you know, Hassel, who's a great hit tool. Um, Abrams is speedy on base percentage guy. Obviously you know, Mackenzie Gore's got all kinds of upside. Um, Suasana, who they got tapped out at 103 in his last start, they got building blocks, and I think these are the kind of deals. I and I likened it back to the Herschel Walker trade from the Vikings of the Cowboys to the Vikings. When if if the Nationals get back to contention, we may end up looking at August second, 2022, as the reason why they're back in contention with the guys that
1: they were able to get. Yeah, most certainly. I mean, this is a pretty big trade. It's a seismic shift, of course, for the National League West in the short term. What will this mean in the long term for the Nationals as they try to? get back anywhere close to where they were not too long ago as they were the World Series winners in 2019. The Miami Marlins weren't that busy either over the trade deadline, making any real notable moves. So I think teams were calling on Pablo Lopez and trying to see if they could pull him away. I know the Yankees were interested in him, but uh, Miami not pulling the trigger on that trade, at least not yet. We talked a little bit about the central, the moves of both the Cardinals and of the Milwaukee Brewers. And as the Milwaukee Brewers find themselves, you know, heading into the weekend and on Sunday, they're now chasing the St. Louis Cardinals because the Cardinals have won five in a row heading into the day and the Brewers trading Josh Hader and, you know, not really getting a whole bunch of reinforcements to walk in the door and Make that club much better is going to have, I think, as you said earlier, quite a dogfight down the stretch.
2: I really like the additions that the Cardinals made. I mean, Jordan, Jordan Montgomery, you know, sneaky good move uh, in getting him, and Jose Quintana, who has his best ERA plus since his All Star season of 2016, allowing home runs at the lowest rate he has in eight years. They took a, a rotation that was 25th in in Fangraph War and went out and got you know a couple great additions to. It. Mm. I, they're not going to match Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, and Freddie Peralta. They're not going to match that. But if they have this Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, yeah. you know, Nolan Gorman, uh, Tyler O'Neill-led offense, and they can put some comparable starting pitching with it, I think that's the equalizer in the central. I think the Brewers are in big trouble.
1: Now, also in the central, we talk about winners and losers and trades that were made. How about the surprising Chicago Cubs? They did deal David Roberts in a way. They traded Michael Givens, and that's all well and good. Givens also went to the New York Mets. Uh, But they did not trade Ian Happ, which I found surprising. They didn't trade Wilson Contreras, which I found even more surprising. I just don't know what the Cubs were thinking with those couple of non-moves, and I can't imagine this because, you know, well, nobody was interested.
2: I don't get the Wilson Contreras thing above all because I, I, certainly there's no th- there was no agreement reached in the international draft, so there's going to be qualifying offers or going there's going to be co- uh, compensatory picks for guys who end up signing elsewhere. So you're ultimately, if you're the Cubs, holding on to William Wilson Contreras for one of two things: either you think he's coming back, or you think what you're going to get as a comp pick is not going to be better than what you were going to get at this trade deadline, which I can't believe. I can't imagine that's is the, the case. truth. And, I mean, certainly, Hap has club control. If you, if you ever sending them, if you're keeping Hap, by in in order to send a message to Contreras that we're not giving up. Please come back. Maybe I, I maybe that makes it. If, if we're talking about this a year from now, and Wilson Contreras has signed a 10-year deal, eight-year deal to remain a Cub, this is a very different story. But at this point yeah. in time, it makes no sense that they're both still on the roster.
1: Well, if we're talking about this a year from now, thank all of you for listening, because this is <laughs> <laughs> quite a discussion to have here in the uh, city of Atlanta, wondering what the Chicago Cubs are doing. I understand that. But the trade deadline overall, and uh, the fact that I think Ian Happ would have been a great fit for a number of clubs, including the Atlanta Braves, just something that I was not expecting. We talked about the things that went out west or went on out west. The L.A. Dodgers didn't do a ton. They did get Joey Gallo. The San Diego Padres, of course, were the heavyweight champions of the trade deadline, if you want to call it that. San Francisco Giants had a few pieces they could have moved. Carlos Rodon being the biggest impact arm. I understand that his contract and the way that he could you know, opt in to a $23 million, I believe it is, player option. And if for some reason you you know, were playing the lottery with Rodon and he got hurt and then all of a sudden you owe him $23 million next year, that would be less than great. But still, you know, Jock Peterson's a guy that they could have dealt. I didn't expect Brandon Crawford or Brandon Belt to get traded. Evan Longoria has been injured this year, so he's not really an asset people are going out there looking for. But, you know, a couple of useful starters. I mean, Radon's more than useful. Alex Cobb, they just really didn't seem to do much. And I thought that for San Francisco, as they sit 22 games out of first place and really not making a move in the wild card, they could have been motivated to cash in a few of these chips and not have to hit the reset button. They could have moved Wilmer Flores.
2: It could have moved, you know, Dominic Leone. And you mentioned uh, Jack Peterson, Rodon. I thought the Rodon point you made there was really interesting because I had mentioned that at the uh, around the talk of him in the deadline. Like, look, he you could be on the hook for twenty two point five million dollars next year. If he exercises that player option, and people said, "Ah, twenty-two point five million is nothing for that kind of a start. It, it is if I'll he. If you, it. it is if you mention if he if he gets hurt. I mean, then you're you're just you're paying this guy. You know, if he's on the hook for that. So I thought that was interesting that they didn't do anything. I also thought it was weird that the Rockies did literally nothing. They were the only team in the majors that did not do anything.
1: Well, they did sign uh, Daniel Bard to a contract extension. Well, they so didn't, They were the only team who was not involved trade. No, I know, I know but this is yeah. what I'm saying. So not only did they not trade and, and make moves that they could have made, but they kept a 37-year-old reliever around for more <laughs> years. But I heard when you get a pitcher that likes pitching in mm-hmm. Colorado, you better sign him. So that may be the way that it goes. Uh, looking across the National League, though, the uh, New York Mets are sitting atop the East. The Los Angeles Dodgers, best record in the National League, leading the West and in the Central for the moment. It is the Cardinals over the Brewers. Your wildcard teams are the Braves suffering through a rough weekend up in New York. Then you got the Phillies and the Padres in a dead heat with the Brewers just behind them, and that is what the National League standings look like. When we come back, we'll turn our attention back to the Atlanta Braves. We will size up the aftermath of the series against the Mets. We'll also get you set up for the week to come. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
1: And welcome back. From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you as we wrap things up for this week's edition. It was a tough one for the Braves up in New York as they battled the Mets. Maybe some signs of life, though, on Sunday as they'll look to get back on track. Heading to Boston for a couple of games, and after that, it's four games in three days against the Miami Marlins. Another one of those doubleheaders, Corey, is awaiting the Braves. This road trip we knew was going to be a big one, I think, to kind of set the tone and the tenor after the trade deadline and heading down the stretch because we knew we had this circled on the calendar for so long, and I'm sure the New York Mets did too. About what these two clubs, you know, what the series means for these two clubs, and we found out that it meant an awful lot to the New York Mets. And it gets no easier for the
2: Braves. I mean, you, and you have to say you're shipping up to Boston. That's what you, anytime you you, you're, you're literally going in, in in that direction, you have to ship up to Boston. But then uh, you mentioned four in Miami. Then, of course, you got the Mets again for four more, and then the Houston Astros. So, I mean, that that's seven games uh, set there, uh, with four at home against the, Ast- mm-hmm. the Mets and four and three against the Astros is going to be an absolute killer coming off of this this road trip so we'll see how the Braves respond but um, you know Boston not exactly playing the greatest of baseball right now so it could be a welcome sight for the the Braves after a, a rough series against the Mets
1: yeah and, and the series against the Mets no two ways about it if you're unable to win this series as the Braves which you are not and which you did not then you were going to lose ground in the east now the good thing is you're not sitting there where you were at the end of May staring at a 10 and a half game deficit with only 50 games to play it is manageable whether it's five and a half six and a half that's that's a manageable deficit You do have seven meetings head-to-head between these two teams, but if there was a message to be sent in this series by one or both clubs, the Mets have sent a message to the Braves that are, hey, we're going to play you really, really tough, and we are going to win some of these baseball games. They did it at Truist Park. We already knew because you hadn't seen them since way back in late April, early May prior to that, that it was going to be a different-looking club. And the Braves were a different-looking club as well, but it just has not come together for Atlanta in a way in which they've been able to play like, I think, the team that we've been watching day in and day out before getting tested by the Mets. And this is not simply, well, the Braves can't play anybody good and be in the game. We've seen it happen. We've seen them play, you know, good teams. Maybe the Mets are who they say they are, and that's, one of the best teams in baseball, and if you're not really keyed in on that message yet, then I think that you have somehow lost the script on the 2022 season. I think they can at
2: least, uh, you know, walk away from Sunday's uh, series finale here against the Mets, uh, knowing that they made Jacob Degrom really mad. Uh, you know, he obviously yeah. walked off and was throwing stuff into the the dugout there after giving up a home run to maybe James B. Clonson, C. B. Buckner so made him well, oh, yeah, man. maybe a little know. bit of that too. But I think you you walk away from this series with the understanding that the Mets have some fantastic pitching. We waited to see what they were going to look like when they were at full strength or as close Mm -hmm. to full strength as they were going to get at this point in the season. And Carlos Carrasco was fantastic. Max Scherzer was fantastic. Jacob DeGrom was fantastic. And you get them into a postseason series, you are going to have to see these guys.
1: I would almost line those three guys up and be like, good, better, best. Yes, Because that's pretty much the way that goes. And maybe Scherzer was a little bit better because he's able to throw more pitches or whatever. But if you're Jacob DeGrom and you're you know toting a perfect game and a 60-pitch count into the sixth inning, you're probably doing a few things right, especially if you're punching out, you know, 10, 11 guys on your way there. But be that as it may, we know the Mets were going to be a big-time challenge for the Braves. And if the message was sent or received on, on you know, each side of this, it's that the Braves have a little bit of work to do, some things to clean up from the way that the series was played, a couple things to figure out in rotation, as we found out with Ian Anderson being optioned to Gwinnett. And we've got to see how this club kind of gels down the stretch. But I would say, and talking to Austin Riley about this about a week or so ago, you know, this is a club that learned an awful lot from what they went through last year, where they were most certainly counted out, where they may have even looked around themselves and said, hey, we just lost Ronald Acuna Jr. This season could pretty much be over, but Alex Anthopoulos infused that team with some talent, and we know the run that went on, and we're not going to spend the next 15 minutes talking about that. But having that experience and knowing that you can overcome some adversity should be something that plays in the Braves' favor a little bit. The Mets, though, I think that the fact that they have a Buck Showalter there leading them, we're not talking about Mickey Calloway or... The manager who never was, and Carlos Beltran, or you know, uh, was it Luis Rivas that was managing them last year? I mean, these are not the names that we're talking about here. We're talking about Buck Showalter, who has got decades of baseball experience. And if you needed to, you know, inject the composure and the uh, the approach that you want going through a long season, the ups and the downs, and the trials, and all the things you got to get through, the Mets picked themselves a pretty good one. They did. And look, I'm, I'm I mean,
2: I'm not going to blow anybody out of the water by saying this on. August 7th, the Braves are not the best team in the National League. They've got work to do to get there. They certainly you walk in with the, you know, the 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 pomp and circumstance of being the defending World Series champions. It's okay to to have that underdog status. I mean, Matt, Matt Olson was talking about this the day of the trade deadline when he's looking up and watching all these deals that are going down and Juan Soto's going to the Padres and, you know, on and on these deals that are happening. And he said, it's okay that, that we have that tag. He goes, these guys, you know, last year nobody believed in these guys and look what ended up happening. And he's yep. like, frankly, I kind of like being the underdog. You know, they, they They've performed in that situation before. They've won in that situation before. I think they're comfortable in that role. Let somebody else be the favorite. You know, let somebody else have that. This team, you know, has you know this decree that they have to to, to win it all. Yeah. And let the Braves be, you know, the team that has done it, but not being the one that everyone's expecting everything in the world from in that moment.
1: And think about it, two things to that. One team's going to win the World Series this year, one team. That's the way it always works out, and that's the way it'll always work out if the title's ever going to mean anything. We can't have a universal champion and then a world champion. That just doesn't work out as well. You can't combine the two championships. I I just don't like that (laughs) storyline. Be that as it may, um, you know, these clubs that go out there and do get the title of the team to beat, that doesn't necessarily win them anything come October. The Los Angeles Dodgers have been the team to beat time in and time out, and, yes, they've gotten to the World Series several times, the Braves had to beat them last year to get to the World Series, but the Dodgers have won exactly one title since 1988, and it came in the shortened 2020 season. And I don't say that to take anything away from it, but I'm just saying, like, they, they have been that team to beat every year and seemingly have been beat somehow, some way, and one of them was a little bit more questionable than others. Um, I don't know. The, the long story short here is, you know, being the best team in baseball can help you get a favorable postseason matchup, if you will, But once you get to the postseason, all those records kind of go out the window, and it's the club that gets on a run. Last year, the Braves got on a run, and that run resulted in making them the best team in baseball because they won the whole thing. I will admittedly say, though, I mean it would be much better in this year in particular to
2: be the team that wins the National League East and not have to play in a three-game wildcard series against a Padres team that has every bit the look of a division winner, but's not going to win a division. I mean, I think that would be an ideal situation to avoid them. And the way things are setting up, I don't think the Padres are going to end up slipping to a number three wild card spot. I think is if I think things are going to hold, and you're going to end up seeing the Braves have to deal with that team in order to get to the next round. But I mean, certainly they are capable. And I, I mean, I, I go back to, to Olsen's comments. I mean, they they this is the way that they want to be seen. They want to have that chip on their shoulder. They they want to be you know, they say it's it's. They admittedly know it's harder to have that chip on your shoulder when you're the reigning World Series champions, but thanks to everybody else, they get to have it again.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's just part of the story for the Braves. And the story is going to be different year to year. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the 2021 World Series title right now earns the Braves anything in 2022. It doesn't, except some cool gold-trimmed jerseys and hats and other <laughs> things that they get to wear, a lot of cool bobblehead nights. and It's all pretty and, cool. You know, some ratings and a lot of sellouts and all that stuff is good. But the Braves have already turned the page as far as the 2022 field staff and players are concerned. They understand what's in front of them here, and I think that that's got to be the focus. And losing one series in August to the New York Mets has not ended this division. Did it help the Braves out? Absolutely not. It doesn't help them out at all. But I don't know what their race to declare the season over is that I get online every time the Braves lose a baseball game. But I don't think that the season is over for this team by a long shot. And the fact that they didn't play this series particularly well against the New York Mets should be, if nothing else, a little bit of a a wake-up call, or to use that word again, a message that was sent and received by the Braves as they leave City Field and realize We've still got an opportunity in front of us, but we can't afford to let it slip through our fingers.
2: They have a 97.8% chance per fan of making the postseason. They are going to make it to this postseason. They're going to get in the tournament, and that's all that matters. You get in, and you see what happens, and certainly we know what this team's capable of. They've got the starting pitching. If Ian Anderson, if he can find himself in uh, what happens going forward in this stint uh, with Triple A Gwinnett, and he's able to return to form, we know what these guys are capable of. So it's, uh, you know, look, it's not an ideal weekend for them, but you know, it's when's the last time this team really dealt with adversity? It's been a year, and and they're back there, and and, you know, find a way through this, and you got some upcoming opportunities to change things.
1: Yeah, and the names have changed a little bit for the Braves year over year, but I don't think that they're. Overall, Quest has really changed altogether that much. And talking to some of these guys after the trade deadline, I thought one of the other interesting things Matt Olson said to kind of just stick with him for a minute was, you know, if anybody wanted to ask him what does it feel like to go out and make trades at the deadline to make your club better, well, he has no experience <laughs> with that because he played in Oakland. So it was, a, yeah. it was a funny moment there in the midst of all that. But I would imagine for a player like this, not that the, o- Oakland hasn't had a couple of good years when Matt Olson was out there. They have been a competitive club before, but we all know the limits of that competitive window in Oakland are – hey, when's it time to trade the next three guys that we grew here and send them off somewhere else and then try to do the whole thing over again? And that's uh, simply not a fun way to to build a sustainable winner and a contender. So hats off to, you know, Billy Bean for being able to have success out there under those circumstances. But for Olsen, this is literally a whole new ball game, And I think that it's an opportunity for him to, you know, be a part of a club that, yeah, they did, they won the whole thing last year. But for him, he didn't experience that. So there's going to be some motivation for some of these guys that weren't around, I would imagine, to you know, have the opportunity to get back into the postseason to make a run.
2: He was actually pretty funny, too, in the aftermath of Austin Riley's deal. You know, we asked about the fact that, that him and, 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 and Riley and, and Acuna and Albies are all locked up, and you've got this core and you've got these guys, is this foundational piece. And he said, "You know, it's 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 refreshing to see a team that decided, hey, you know what, we're going to hold on to some of these guys and we're going to try to build around this thing. And you know, certainly he's uh, he's in an interesting place here. He's not never been in this kind of a of a situation before. Uh, Rocio Iglesias has never been in this kind of a situation nope. before as he comes into it. So they're they got some key pieces who are going to be up, I think, for their first postseason, their first uh, pennant rush here. And so we'll see what, what they're able to do. But uh, an upcoming series against the the Red Sox is going to be a chance, I think, for this team to get back into the winning ways.
1: Now the Braves have 52 games." Remaining as they close out the five-game series against the New York Mets. Clearly, things did not go the way that you wanted. You want to go up to Citi Field, you want to win that series. And it was going to be difficult with five games in four days. The Braves got themselves tested in a number of different ways. We saw that Ian Anderson, as you mentioned a, few, a couple minutes ago, is now going to be trying to work out his troubles down in Gwinnett. We saw that uh, Tyler, uh, Tyler, that uh, Travis Darnot nearly had himself another injury scare, and we saw what that meant to the Braves last year. That was not a great situation. Even with the growth of William Contreras, you did not want to lose one of your two very important catchers, especially right after the trade deadline when you can't really go out there and address it. You can't have a Contreras brothers reunion at this point, (laughs) and that's just one of the things that, you know, the timing of all of this stuff all plays a part in the story as far as the season's concerned as well. Let's turn our attention to this Boston Red Sox series. The Braves do have an off day on Monday. Um, we're assuming it's an off day. The last time the Braves had an off day, Alex Anthopoulos <laughs> pulled off three yeah. trades and signed Austin Riley to a 10-year mm-hmm. extension. So I've used the term off day around here very loosely. Uh, but it is going to be Charlie Morton and Rich Hill in game one, Kyle Wright and Nick Pavetta in game two if the Braves keep their rotation lined up the way that it has been. Uh, for Charlie, uh, I think the big thing is continue to capitalize on the opportunity to get that momentum going. And when you talk about guys that have been there, done that, and guys that you expect to step up down the stretch, I think Charlie Morton's name has to be at or near the top of the list for this Braves pitching staff. And I
2: think it's all the more important now when you think about the fact that at least for the, you know, the foreseeable future, Ian uh, and obviously he's going to be at as the 27th man during this doubleheader against the Marlins, but Ian Anderson not in your immediate plans after that. So no. I think it's more important that Charlie Morton looks like that stabilizer that we've seen him been in the past. Um, he doesn't have to be the ace, and, you know. Max Freed's got that on lock right now, but I think he's got to be, you know, a a consistent uh, foundational piece, and he's got you got to know what you're going to get when Charlie Morton goes out there. He's been much more of that lately, and they need that going forward.
1: Yeah, they do. Now Kyle Wright had a forgettable start against the New York Mets. In fact, he's faced them a couple of times, and they've had his number thus far. But if I've seen anything out of Kyle Wright this year that has me not overly concerned about when he does have a clunker of a start, which, by the way, every starting pitcher is going to have throughout the course of a long season, he's able to bounce right back and continue to give the Braves quality start after quality start. I mean, he has been, I think, in terms of just overall innings, more than you could have asked for and and then some, and in terms of quality, even more than that. So for Kyle Wright, this is an important bounce-back start, I think, against Nick Pavetta. It will be. He's faced the Red Sox
2: before. He's never never pitched in Fenway before, so this will be a really cool moment. I think be fun. For, yeah, I think this will be a cool moment for Kyle Wright to be able to do that. He has, again, He's he's faced Boston, uh, you know, he's seen this lineup. I mean, he didn't have a lot. He's seen him three times. He obviously faced him earlier this year. Um, you know, he allowed six runs uh, on, in just a four and two-thirds inning. So um, needing a bounce back after a bounce back after a bounce back. So we'll see if he's able to, to perform in that capacity.
1: Now, speaking of somebody who needed a big bounce back, Ronald Acuna Jr., we talked about it at the top of the show, the eight hits that he had against the New York Mets over the first four games of the series. That's clearly a big deal for him. The home run drought that was over after eighteen games and seventy five at bats. Hadn't seen anything like that out of Ronald Acuna Junior. I'm hoping that at least the results he got up at City Field are something that will start to, you know, really get him back to feeling himself and feeling like himself both at the plate and in the field?
2: Without question. I mean, he's obviously going against, you know, some pitchers here. He has an opportunity to, to have some success against. guy you know, Rich Hill he's had success against in the past. Um, eight hits, you know, go in this series, the most he's had in any series. Love what he's doing against the slider. Uh, I, I think he is on a roll right now. Uh, I think he's going to do some damage in Boston.
1: Braves clearly need to see more of that. So as far as the week to come for the Atlanta Braves, it begins with the two games in Boston, sandwiched around off days on Monday and Thursday. Then it's Friday through Sunday, four games in three days, including a Saturday doubleheader against the Miami Marlins. That'll wrap us up here on From the Diamond. As always, Corey, enjoyed it. Look forward to doing it again next week.
2: Let's do it again.
1: All right, Stephen Gagliano, thank you for all your help on the show. We appreciate you, as always, and for all of you out there listening, we appreciate you. You can find From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts or the Odyssey app, and, of course, every Sunday right here on 92.9 The Game. We'll look forward to joining you again next week. So long, everyone.